Hello, everyone. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by my Patreon. I have a Patreon community. I'm very excited to share it with you all. In my Patreon community, I have workshops around conscious leadership, anti-racism work, intentional well-being, intentional, joyful, mindful movement. I have a wonderful journal to keep you on track for your own personal well-being. We do conversations. There's a book club and a reading list and merch. We have the cutest merch over on Patreon. So I'm going to thank myself for sponsoring this podcast. You can check me out at www.patreon.com forward slash Diane Bondi. I hope to see you there. Welcome back to the Intentional Wellbeing Podcast. I'm very, very, very excited this morning. You know, whenever I get on this podcast, I'm excited because I only invite the people to this podcast that make me think, that inspire me, that I want to talk to. And I have been following Mia Kwan for quite a long time. She is an anti-diet dietitian with a Master of Public Health in Nutrition Services from the University of Washington. She helps lifelong dieters break away from the toxic culture and empowers them to build trust with their own bodies. And this is a big one. I talk a lot about this in my own work. Her signature online program called Body Respect, whoop whoop, has hundreds of women break free from the cycle of food guilt and body shame and replace it with food freedom, which I'm all about, body appreciation and self-love. That's the big one. In addition to her online practice, she is a nutrition faculty at the Seattle Pacific University. She's a strong, and I'm going to say this, strong, 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 because her content's amazing, uh, anti-diet advocate and believes that all bodies, regardless of weight and size, deserve respectful and compassionate care. She can be found on Instagram at foodbody.peace and her website, foodbodypeace.com. Welcome, Mia. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for being on the pod. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I'm going to just jump in with the conversation we were having before we were starting recording, because this is the thing that drew me to you. I have been in and out of, uh, you know, activation warning. I'm going to talk about eating disorders. I have had a disordered relationship with food for probably my entire life. As a first-generation Canadian, my parents are from the Caribbean. A lot of our culture is circled around food. And I developed um, a full-blown eating disorder in my teen years. And I had gone to a dietitian back in the day when dietitians were about prescribing another diet for me, different from the diet I had prescribed for myself. And that coming into these spaces, I never felt seen or heard or represented because every dietitian that I ever had a relationship with, one would put me on another diet or two wasn't part of my cultural um, background or had no cultural awareness. And I'm talking about the 70s, 80s and 90s. Things have very much changed, which is why I'm talking to you. And having been told that my cultural foods are not good for me, things that my ancestors have been eating for centuries if not millennia, are no longer good for me. And now that I have to eat A, a Mediterranean diet, or B, a colonized diet. And coming home with this diet, 
um, that doesn't represent anything that we eat in my house and asking my mother to make these foods created a whole issue because my mom's like, we don't eat this. I don't even know where to buy this. I don't even know how to prepare this. And it, I, I never really made peace with food or my body until well into my forties. So I want to, mm. I want to say to you how important it was for me to see you on Instagram as an mm. Asian woman talking about anti-diet culture, because we do, I don't see people of color at all in the uh, dietitian di in the field of dietetics. So I am excited to talk to you about that. Absolutely. Uh, and that just speaks so much to me personally as well. And like we were just chatting about, um, the field is heavily, um, it, it, it's not a diversified field. Let me put it that At way. All. It's a bit heavily, yeah. um, uh, white dominated, female dominated. So there's very much of a lack of a representation. And it means so much to me when I hear from other uh, people of color or, you know, fellow Asians, um, who reach out to me and say like, Hey, I've, been in this anti-diet space and wanting to make peace with freedom, but I've never seen someone who looks like me. And I can't tell you how much it matters that I see someone who looks it like me matter. and who says it's okay to eat our cultural foods, that it's okay to eat the white rice. And I'm like, ah, don't you get me started talking about my white rice, our, our white rice. <laughs> so I'm going to get yes. very protective of it. And it's so, um, in a way, sad and it breaks my heart because sure, like I got into nutrition because I was drawn to the nutrition aspect of it. Sure. Like, you know, but food is just so much more than nutrients and fuel. Absolutely. And when we start to strip away the other purposes of food about the joy, the culture, the traditions, um, the, the connections, when we strip that away and deduce food down to just fuel and nutrients, like we, by limiting the other purposes of food, we limit life. And it really takes away the whole meaning and what food is all about. And so it, it matters so much to have these voices and, um, and honor our cultural foods, you know, from just so for so many reasons. Absolutely. And that's why I think it's important. Uh, as I told you before, I've done a lot of work with NIDA and a lot of work with NEDIC, which is the Canadian uh, National Eating um, Disorders Information Center. Uh, and I've gone to a lot of conferences where there'd be anywhere from 400 to 600 to 700 people. And I look out in the, the group of people and I don't see representation. The last uh, conference I went to was in 2019, prior to um, the pandemic. And I, there was only four, four black, four black, um, or black, you know, people who identified as black as dietitians. And I honestly didn't remember seeing anybody who was Asian. And I was purposely looking because I wanted to see how this field was made up. Who were the gatekeepers mm -hmm. of dietetics who are writing the books, who are writing the, you know, the curriculum, who are educating other people. And to me, it was predominantly white. And I called it out, actually. I said, mm -hmm. if we look around, I had a question for one of the speakers. If we look around, we see where white supremacy lives here. And when I'm talking about white supremacy, it's that nine, what I think you said something along the lines of 93% of dietitians are white women um, yeah. who are, you know, not familiar with a Caribbean cultural food, not familiar with Asian cultural food, and really directing us to eat things that um, we would ordinarily eat and maybe sometimes excludes us from our culture. Absolutely. That's happening a lot. And I mean, I'm glad that in the field, we're starting to have more conversations around it and more awareness around it and really trying to embed it into the education and just our own um, 
awareness to serve, you know, we can't serve from a place of just having our own lens of how we look at and um, and enforce that on to our clients and patients. Um, And so it's good to see the changes, but there's still a far way to go with it. Yeah, Yeah. very slow. I find these kinds of changes are always the slowest to come about. And I find it frustrating uh, above all else. Tell me, how did you became become interested in a the non diet approach? I love everything that you stand for body peace, peace, uh, you know, self love. And I love what you said about food not being distilled down or stripped down to pure nutrients, that it has these, you know, these cultural connections, it food can just be joyful for the sake of being joyful. And when did, when did we get to the point that it was only about nutrients? Well, diet culture, <laughs> there's one yeah, about that. exactly. There you go. Um, yeah. Um, but how I came into the dietetics field and to the anti-diet kind of world um, was a journey in itself. And I don't know mm-hmm. if you know that I had, this is my second career. So I worked in uh, media and communications, that communications was, was my college major. And I joke about, you know, now I, as a college professor as well, when I talk to students and share a little bit about my, about my history and, you know, nutrition students are often very nutrition focused, right? They right. they can be often the ones who kind of strip it down to nutrition because that's how we talk about the science of nutrition a lot. And um, it's funny how I share with them, you know, when I was in college and I wasn't a nutrition major and food was just kind of food, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I had a pretty protected relationship with food. Let's say that um, there wasn't a lot of like good food, bad foods when I was growing up. Um, and even though I split my time growing up both in the U.S. and in Korea, um, you know, so I had exposure to cultural foods. I also had my fair share of exposure to Western foods. And my mom jokes about how I was such a picky eater when I was three, four years old and living in the States. Um, the only consistent thing that she could get me to eat was McDonald's French fries. And to this day, it's still one of my favorite foods, right? It's consistent. And, it's They're always good. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I, I probably ate a Whopper Junior cheeseburger every day on campus in college because nothing else really appealed to me. So, you know, that's how kind of free I was with food. I didn't think too much about nutrition, let's say, but, you know, seven years into my corporate career, um, I was kind of driving myself to the ground, working long hours, skipping meals, pulling all-nighters, no sleep, self-care was not a word that I had in my vocabulary. And I just came to a point Mm -hmm. of burnout. And so Mm -hmm. that's what um, uh, interest started to pique my interest in nutrition when I started to think about, huh, I wonder, you know, how I could take care of myself better. Huh. I wonder if it has anything to do with what I eat. And that's the first time that I started to look at food in a more intentional kind of mindful way. And then went down this rabbit hole, reading all the things and so many opinions on the internet. Everyone has an opinion about nutrition. Oh, and I was yeah. like, <laughs> so I went oh, down a yes. rabbit hole. And I saw, I found a lot of fear mongering information, mm-hmm. right? Yes. To a point where I'm not going to name the author and the book. I'm not going to name the author and the book. Um, but there was a book that was particularly fear mongering and I read it and that was enough to make me stop eating meat and any animal products. So I kind of turned oh. vegan for about five years. And it wasn't until that I was actually in grad school to study nutritional sciences that I turned back after learning about um, actual the science physiology of our bodies and about nutrition that 
I understood, I came to realize that my choice to stop eating meat didn't just come from, you know, my own values or ethic. It, it was because I was afraid. About so I had an opportunity in grad school um, to do this adolescent medicine fellowship at Seattle Children's Hospital. And it was um, a program, an adolescent medicine program, where they treated the spectrum of eating disorders. And that's mm. where I got to understand and put the language around um, what orthorexia was, what all the different eating disorders were, and really the conventional uh, education that I got prior to that point, which was very weight centric. And it was, you know, mm -hmm. really using kind of the BMI standards and um, kind of the notion that you would be able to tell if someone has anorexia because they would have a smaller body, which couldn't be further from the truth. And so I was fortunate, though, to Absolutely. have um, that that mentorship and training in a adolescent medicine clinic where they were practicing that non-diet approach, which is pretty rare. And so I, I, I found myself, yes. um, I consider myself pretty fortunate and lucky that unlike a lot of dietitians, um, I did not go through a phase where I was practicing from that weight centric lens. I really got exposed to the non-diet approach pretty early on um, before I got my dietitian license. And so I was started off in the right ground, let's say, to really overhaul and um, open my mind up to a different way of thinking and not only a different way of thinking, because it's not an opinion that there was so much uh, rich evidence and research that backs up why a weight centric approach can be so harmful in misdiagnosing, underdiagnosing um, eating disorders or missing uh, the disorder relationship with food and body when we're just using those, you know, bodies at standards, weight standards. Um, and I um, was introduced to intuitive eating, the idea of health at every size, the rich evidence of all of that. And that really changed my world um, personally and professionally um, to operate from a different lens of I can't add to the harm. That's when I also learned about diet culture. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was just these different mm -hmm. pieces that came to, started to come together that set me up to, you know, it was not a choice. At that point, it could no longer even be a choice. There was no um, option to continue to practice from, you know, your, your BMI is a certain way, so you got to lose weight. When I learned that BMI was something that had no medical evidence whatsoever to begin with. So there's no debate in my mind that that would be an option even. <laughs> It's amazing to me how many healthcare professionals still use BMI as the benchmark for determining whether people are healthy or not, when there are far better indicators of health than BMI. And for those of you who don't know what BMI is, it's basically your height divided by your weight. We come up with an arbitrary number and we decide whether that number is good or bad based on a scientist from the, is it the 18th century who created this? It, he's not even a scientist. I think he's an astronomer. Um, but I'll link to an article in the show notes so that you can get, you know, this is just what I remember offhand. Um, I've often called it the bullshit measuring index because it doesn't measure anything practical. And for me, that BMI was a big trigger in my relationship with food and body image. Back in 1994, I believe, somewhere around there, they refined the BMI. So one day my BMI was perfect. And then the next day I was morbidly obese. 
according to the BMI. So that's language I'm using from the BMI. This is not language I use in my everyday um, culture, but it that's how it was stated. So I went from having a normal, and I put that in air quotes, BMI to having a, a, you know, a dangerous BMI in the course of one day because they refined the calculation in some kind of way. And that just sent me down a rabbit hole. I was already over-exercising. I was already doing harmful things to my body. And then I was just given permission by this arbitrary measurement to continue this um, behavior. And when I went in to see my doctor, um, they didn't seem to have a problem with what I was doing, even though I was getting repetitive stress um, injuries. They didn't seem to think it was a problem, right? That, you know, you still have weight to lose. So do it however you can get it done. And that was like the 90s and um, the early 2000s. I've only been in recovery, I would say for about 17 years where I've had to really change my relationship and it's due to folks like you. And this anti-diet approach to making peace with food, who created this? How did this come into being? Like, how are we, how did this whole thing start? Because 10 years ago, I wasn't hearing this language. Mm. Yeah, well, I don't think there's just one, you know, person or one movement that started. I think it, it, it was uprooted from different areas. And, you know, just commenting on kind of the BMI, you're right that it was developed by someone who was a mathematician, astronomer, had no medical background. And another important thing is that when he developed those standards, and he made it pretty clear even then that this should not be a tool to diagnose individuals, it should only be a tool to oh, wow. study large numbers of populations, right? But the thing is, okay. when he collected the data to create those standards, the large body of populations that he collected data from were white Northern European men, specifically mm -hmm. Scottish and French men. So the data was only based on white male European bodies. And this is where the notion that BMI is racist also comes from. So it's like you collect data from white European, thin white European men, because by race, they are more, you know, likely to be have thinner bodies than other races. And then you say this is a standard that should be applied to the entire pop population across the world. And we're going to make arbitrary standards to designate who is healthy and who is not when there is no medical evidence for that either. Right. And that has created so many problems for so many people like Diane, you just yes. shared, but so many clients of mine who were doing that over exercising, overly restricting, but their BMI showed that they were, quote unquote, obese and the doctors didn't even mm -hmm. ask them. How are you eating? What are you, you know, doing in terms of movement? They just looked at the BMI and said, you got to go lose weight. What, do, what does the doctor want them to do when the client is already spending hours and hours in the gym and severely restricting? And her heart rate was so low that she could collapse and have a heart attack, right? And so that's a kind of harm that using just one aspect that doesn't even have evidence on, um, instead of looking at the whole person and looking at their behaviors, mm -hmm. looking at their mental health, because health is also not just physical health. And so I think yes. those notions of, hey, like there's something wrong with it, um, something like the measurement like BMI. So there were people who started to question that. There started to be a research that um, debunks the validity of the BMI. So that is happening. And along with that came the health at every size movement um, from, mm -hmm. um, from different types of providers, um, not only medical providers, but social scientists who would study those intersections of um, 
health and different systems of oppression because in that larger lens of diet culture, we see diet culture as a system of oppression that designates, you know, mm-hmm. here's a standard that we're going to designate who is good and who is bad and who gets to have privilege and who doesn't. It's, that's a system of oppression, right? So these different places where social scientists, um, medical scientists were studying this, and that was the start of the health at every size movement that is now also, you know, um, a, a medical approach that a lot of providers are mm-hmm. adopting. And then there was, of course, the beginning of intuitive eating that was started by two registered dietitians. Uh, I believe it began in the early 90s um, by Elise Resch and Evelyn Triboli, who are the authors of the book Intuitive Eating. And they just from their own frustrations of treating patients from a weight-centered approach and finding out that, hey, this is not actually helping them, it's harming them. Is there a different way to... Um, support their health and a different way to look at food. And that's how they came up with intuitive eating principles. And that was um, in the past 30, 40 years, there's been um, hundreds Mm -hmm. of studies that support the validity of intuitive eating, which is a primarily uh, a non-diet, non-weight centric approach uh, to food. Um, And so I think it was all these like different pieces that kind of came together that collectively create the anti-diet community um, and, and because, you know, of the evidence accumulating because of different providers in different areas, adopting it more and more, it became a lot more visible in the past decade, um, while it has mm-hmm. been steadily growing in the past 30, 40 years. Which I am grateful for, because when I was in eating disorder treatment, uh, it just made me better at dieting, quite frankly, because I was given a diet we were still counting calories. We were still doing all of those things. And I just got way better at it. I think the very first interview that I had with my dietitian, I had told her what I was eating and she went through and said, well, you're not really, you know, this has got this many calories. So you're not doing this and you're not. She just laid out all the problems with my already problematic diet in terms mm-hmm. of how I was thinking about it. Um, I, got, I went through um, disordered eating treatment in the in the 80s and it's Mm. a very different animal now and when i look back at the harm that that has created i had a lot of issues with trusting um dietitians because if anything they weren't hearing me they weren't listening to me and i would often have conversations like you know i'm going to go to a party okay and there's going to be food there how am i going to deal with this and instead of a dietitian saying to me this is a social event, you are celebrating something, it's okay to enjoy this moment, they would say, eat before you go, have an apple in your purse, like, just like things that, I don't know, things that just really ruined my relationship with a lot of things, and set me on a path um, that made me really sick for a really long time. And unfortunately, the way society is set up, it gets reinforced that I'm doing the right thing, even though I'm dying on the inside. Yeah. And that is the, such the the scary part about this is that that diet culture mindset is in, has infiltrated all parts of our society, including the medical system where, right. The BMI continues to be used primarily as an indicator of health. Um, Eating disorder screening is still not a standard practice. Not every provider is educated to look for those red flags Um, even how the dietetics education, medical education, even though there have been some changes, and I hope that I'm contributing to those positive changes as an educator now, but 
but still largely operates under that predominant lens of a weight-centric approach. And so, um, yeah, like you said, it's it's evolved and there's still a lot more changes that need to happen in order to stop doing that further harm. It's amazing. So I know what I, I know that you're on your you're helping your patients, your the people in your care to become more trusting of their bodies. What are some of the things that you're saying to people who are struggling with disordered eating or eating disorders? What are some of the things that you can you can share with me on how you kind of draw people out or start to have people refine their their relationship with food? Mm-hmm. Woo, big question. <laughs> I know. Sorry, take your time. Feel free. No. And I think it really starts with examining and helping them see um, how their relationship with food now is going and how it's actually serving them, right? Because a lot of my clients, at least, um, I have a lot of clients in, you know, the middle uh, ages. I have them all across the spectrum, but often they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s who we're not just ta- talking about years, a couple years of dieting. We're talking about decades at times, a right? Lifetime. 10, 20, 30 plus years. Yeah, a lifetime. And and so it's it's such been uh, an ingrained way of thinking about food that you have to fight yep. your hunger. You have to trick your cravings. You know, these are all the kind of languages that we see in media like, oh, you're hungry? Well, try drinking water. Um, oh, yes, you, maybe you're you, thirsty. No, I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or you're craving something sweet? Well, eat an apple and you trick no. your brain. So these are the ways that we've learned to adopt these diet culture practices to really sever the connection with our own bodies, because your body has a lot of wisdom for what it needs and what it wants. And the diet culture mindset has taught you to not listen to that and and not trust that. And so when we think about, okay, so now I'm tired of dieting. I'm tired of fighting my body all the time. I'm tired of all the mental spaces taking up. It's first acknowledging that, right? Is all of that Mm. worth it? What have, mm-hmm. what have you missed out on because of that? And they start to tell me, mm-hmm. well, I haven't been in pictures when my kids were growing up. I, am, I wasn't That's able to me. enjoy my own wedding because I was, you know, mm-hmm. paranoid about how I was looking in my wedding dress and I wasn't actually in that, yeah. in that moment. I, I never enjoyed the vacations that I was on because I was so preoccupied about my tummy roll. Like these are all the moments that you missed out on your life. And once we start to acknowledge like, whoo, like dieting and all that that's a lot, energy, that's a lot. and so it's from there lot. it's like okay I, I i don't want to live like this anymore i want to make peace with food i want to be free from these struggles and so from there what we need to do is start to examine those underlying beliefs that we have about food about our bodies and to shift those and challenge those so okay if one of the things that we identified is I'm often fighting my hunger and I don't trust my hunger. I feel like hunger is a bad thing. And it's like, where did we learn that? Where did you learn that? You know, from a very compassionate lens, because it's like, it makes so much sense why you became to think that way when your mom put you on a diet when you're 10 years old. Yep. Eight right? me. Yep. Yeah. So it's no wonder it's not another reason to bash yourself that you didn't know any better. Of course you didn't know any better because of the environment you were in. So it's to have a very compassionate look and that can be hard sometimes. And that's where, you know, working with someone who can hold you through that process can be very valuable. And so to gently look at those and challenge those, it's like, you know what? My body having the hunger signals is my body telling that it needs fuel. How grateful I could be for that. 
And that's a very different way of looking at hunger. And so we Absolutely. start with those one at a time, like identify those mm -hmm. rules, that those beliefs that contributed to, to missing out on your life and to damaging your relationship with food and your body and to, and to work on shifting them one by one. It's like, the next time I feel hungry, it's like, oh, thank you, body, for giving me the hunger signal. It's still hard for me to listen to that, but I'm going to try to do that. Let me try to fuel you. <laughs> Let me see what I can do, right? And we can do similar things about, you know, kind of the good food, bad food mentality of like, oh, yes. sweets were, sweets might be something, you know, like evil that you can only have on a special occasion. Well, cravings mm -hmm. are a valid reason to eat. Finding joy and comfort in food is also valid. And to mm -hmm. work on that and to give your honor the cravings and give yourself permission to eat that chocolate cake and to celebrate yes. with the chocolate cake and to bring the joy of food back into your life. So these are small steps of challenging the rules and starting to embody them in a different way that actually does serve you. You know, that is such a hard thing to sit with because diet culture has told me forever and forever and forever and forever that I should not be finding comfort in food. And that even when I, you know, my kids were little and I was breaking out of this because I did not want to pass on my, you know, damaged relationship with food or the things that I learned in my childhood, because diet culture was like huge in the 70s, like 70s when, when we started seeing more introductions of artificially uh, sweetened pop, like tab was a big pop and, you know, one calorie Pepsi and all this kind of stuff came out when I was a little kid and everybody was consuming these foods and that we weren't allowed to take pleasure or joy in food. And I really wanted to change that for my children that even when they were crying or they felt upset and I gave them a cookie and that cookie made them joyful or happy, that was good enough for me, but I was also trained in diet culture that I shouldn't be consoling myself with food, that somehow I should be consoling myself with exercise. <laughs> I'm not saying that you can't feel good while you're exercising, but if you are craving that cookie and that's going to give you some kind of joy or pleasure, tasting that the texture and the sweetness and all the yumminess on the tip of your tongue, I would rather do that than go for a run. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> and, and by having those rules enforced on you that you should be doing this or you shouldn't be doing this, it takes away your own autonomy. And that's mm. a big problem too, right? And who says that if you actually have that autonomy, it might actually be that, you know what, some days when I'm feeling discomfort or stressed, hey, today a run sounds great. Hey, on a different yes. day, a cookie sounds great. So you have the autonomy to choose, but diet culture strips that away from you. And mm -hmm. that's another further way that it disconnects you from your own body because your body does have that wisdom. And like you said, it demonizes um, that notion that you eat to soothe emotions or you eat to soothe, you know, find comfort. And, and, and that's also another way that it, it doesn't honor that other purpose of food, right? Because um, having emotions around food is a, it's a natural innate human thing. So as babies, you have two needs. You have the need to be held. You have the need to be um, fed, right? To feel safe yeah. and to be fed. And so holding and feeding are the two biggest needs that you have. And often they happen at the same time. So when our yes. caretakers and our mamas held us and fed us, that's the first time we associated with, ooh, food, safety, ooh, food, love, ooh, food, comfort. So that's an innate wiring, right? And so yeah. it's not something to be demonized. 
and and yet yes there is something to be said about food being the only way to soothe food being right. the only way to escape and distract yourself from what you're actually feeling right mm -hmm. so that's where that notion of like oh emotional eating is bad comes from but eating to soothe on its own does not mean it's always pathological and we really take away all those nuances when we just look at it from that diacultural framework of like oh that's bad that's something that you shouldn't do and so it's the process of getting back in touch with our bodies is working through those nuances because you are a complex human being and that yes. has changing dynamic needs on a pretty much a daily basis and there can never be a set of rules that would meet your needs you know now and forever Right. And, we, you keep and we're completely disregarding that when we listen to these shoulds and shouldn'ts of diet culture. Which is amazing to me. I never made this connection until this moment. So this moment in time is the first time I'm making the connection of holding my baby and feeding them and then feeling safe and loved and making those connections. Um, I was fortunate enough with both my children to be able to breastfeed them. And one of the best things that I remember is sitting on the couch. And then when I was getting ready to feed them, the excitement of my baby to getting fed and, you know, not to give too much information. Um, my, my babies were so small and my breasts were so big that they literally would wrap both their hands around it. Like it was a snuggly while they were eating. And I thought it was the most adorable thing ever. Ever, and I may have a few pictures of that, private pictures of that. But it's just like, it never occurred to me that this, just when they were done feeding that little milk smile and the way they were kind of like, I used to call it like they were milk dopey. Like they had the smile and they were so fed and, and they would sleep so soundly. Of course that makes sense. And, and, and why are we always taught to push back against mother nature? I tell everybody, especially when they're trying to find body peace, that this body that you're in is hundreds, mm -hmm. if not thousands of years of evolution. The best parts of all of your ancestors come together to make this, this human being that you're in. And it's, so your mm -hmm. body's at least worthy of respect at the very Absolutely. minimum. Absolutely. And not so much always. criticism right? At the very minimum. And, and if we even begin to think about the things that our bodies do for us every single day without asking, and I'm not even talking about physical things. I'm talking about even emotional things, feeling joy, being happy, sharing love. Like when you see somebody you love and you get to be in their energy and that feeling that your body gives you, why can we not focus on those things? Why is it always about an aesthetic? Why is it mm -hmm. always about a picture that most of us will never be able to achieve? Yeah, that's what diet culture did to us. And it's, it's so sad and unfortunate when our bodies are a miracle in itself, like you said. When I think of, when I think about it, um, I developed a thyroid condition about six years ago and I was drastically losing tons of weight and I had no idea what was going on. Heart palpitations, profuse sweating, all these things happening. And I was posting pictures of my journey of not feeling well. And all people, a lot of people were saying to me things like, wow, you look so great. And I'd be like, but I feel like hell, like I feel like I'm dying. And initially I was like, my heart rate was, you know, everything was like bottoming out by the time somebody actually figured out what was wrong with me. And I went into treatment and I learned something about my body. A couple of things I learned about getting sick was that I needed to step back and be an appreciation about my body. Instead of being angry at it, that it got sick, 
I wanted to be compassionate toward it because it was asking me for help and I needed to show up for it. Like I needed to be a hundred percent in it because it needed me and it had always served me and it had always done the things that I needed it to do. Maybe not exactly the way that I wanted it done, but it always showed up for me. And now this was an opportunity for me to show up for it. And it also taught me how little calories in versus calories out actually had to do with weight loss because I was eating so much because I was so hungry. I had, I have hyperthyroidism, So my thyroid is working overtime. And so I was eating so much food and still losing masses amount of weight. So when people come at me with this calories in versus calories out, it's bullshit. And if you're riding a spin bike or a treadmill and it's telling you how many calories you're burning, how can a machine that 20, 30, 40, 50, 70 people get on a day riding can detect what your body is doing? Not knowing your physical history, not knowing, you know, what's going on with your thyroid, not, not, not knowing what's going on with your hormones. Like the whole thing is ridiculous, but we buy in hook, line and sinker every time. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So true. And yeah, there's so much debunking to do on the whole calories in calories out, but just the way that we're conditioned to think about our bodies and view our bodies just, you know, takes away so much from what our bodies actually do. Like you said, um, it's always about that kind of look and the weight when you don't know if someone is sick, you know, I had clients who say my mom is going through cancer and chemo and she's happy that she's losing weight. And she's like, that's how much diet culture is in us right? Like you might yes. die and you're happy about losing weight. And again, like this is just a reminder to like all of us are impacted by diet culture in different ways and to different degrees. Um, but it's really, you know, putting this, this filter on our, yeah. on how we perceive ourselves and our bodies and not allow us to see, um, our bodies for the wonders that it is and for all the things that it does. Because, you know, like one of the clients that I worked with who after 30 years of dieting and, and when she started to make peace with food and body working with me, um, she one day had this realization and said like, huh, today I looked at my body and that I hated for so long. And yeah. I was able to say, huh, like, thank you for allowing me to give birth to five children to exactly. get me through to get me through taking care of my elderly parents, to have enough energy to, to still carry on and take care of my household and do my job and to help me survive. Yeah. So diet culture really capitalizes off of our insecurities and self-doubt with a, a product, AKA diets that never deliver the promises. And I always ask clients if there was a medication that fail to deliver what it said it would do 95% of the time, would it be your fault or would it be the medication's fault? And of course, clients have no problem saying, of course, it's a medication's fault. And yet with diets, we blame ourselves for the lack of willpower for, oh, I wasn't, I don't have that self-control when it was, you know, all the things that happened to, um, to think about food, to try to eat more food um, while you were on those diets was your body's way of fighting back, of fighting back on trying to protect yes. you. And yet we, we call that a lack of our, you know, self-control and turn that blame on ourselves. It's a, it's an insidious, tricky billion dollar, hundred billion dollar 
industry per year. So somebody out there is making money off of you, knowing full well that 95 to 98% of all diets fail. And I tell people this all the time. If there were, if diets work, there'd be one diet, everybody'd be on it, and that would be the end of it. And how would the world look with no diversity of body shape or size? How boring is that? Like how ridiculous is that? When you actually break it down and think about it in a non-emotional way, it just, it seems ridiculous. Like the whole thing, like you said, if you had a drug that didn't work 95% of the time and you blamed yourself for it, it's, it's, it's infuriating to me. Having yeah. said that. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, you reminded me of, I don't know if you ever watched the, the health at every size video. It's called poodle science, the problem with poodle science. And it's a three minute oh. video that you can, you can Google on YouTube and it breaks down health at every size really well. Um, and highlights that point of body diversity that you just talked about and it does it using dogs. And so it's like how it, how it explains it is, you know, the, the problem with poodle science and looking at poodles, which is kind of the thin bodies, you would never look at a mastiff and say, oh, that's a fat poodle, right? And therefore the mastiff has to lose weight and become poodle size in order to be healthy, right? Like the mastiff, like all, there's different dog breeds that were evolved in a way to um, endure different climates and different, you know, right. um, environments. And so that's why we have big dogs, small dogs, fluffy dogs, you know, right. um, and yet what we're saying with the BMI is like, oh, all human beings in order to be healthy has to be this side. And that's saying the same as like for the Mastiff to be healthy, it has to be poodle size. And, you know, when we put it in that light, it's like, oh, that's ridiculous. But why are we doing that to human beings? It's brilliant. I'm going to have to look at up. Don't worry. We'll link that video in the show notes because I think that's 100% brilliant. So as we're going to wrap up, there's one question I ask everybody on the podcast. What does intentional well-being mean to you? And you can take a few minutes because I'm just throwing you on the spot. You didn't know you were going to be asked this question. But what does intentional well-being mean to you? I just like want to play the Jeopardy music here as we're like thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I love it. Well, intentional well-being to me means attuned and connected to my own body in this present moment. And like we have been talking about so much of, you know, how diet culture puts messages on us or just our society in general, we're so much focused on, oh, I need to achieve this. I need to continue to get there. Where is there? really right and yes, that yeah. takes us out of our kind of experiences now and to me you know that being that intentional well-being means what does my here and now body need what do i need in my here and now body in my here and now mental health and my emotional health to feel good right now and to be fully present in this moment not worrying about tomorrow about one year down the road but right now and that's been a continuous practice for myself as as much as it is for something that i'm helping my clients do in the food and body realm but i think just as a human being it's so hard to do on this in a society where we're always on the go 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 and constantly chasing after that yeah. next thing and never feeling like we're good enough to just be um, and I love that kind of a quote. I don't know who said it, but there's a reason why we're called human beings and not human doings. Doings. Because... Yes. I've heard that one too. Yes. But we can just kind of be here now. And so Absolutely. that's the first thing that came up to me. I love that. If you could offer three tips for folks who are struggling either with 
unlearning diet culture or making peace with their bodies, what would there be? Is there, is there three takeaways that you can give our listeners to help them get on the path of, you know, finally making peace with their bodies? I, like, I mean, I love food, body, peace. Like those three mm-hmm. things speak to me. What would you offer? Mm-hmm. What are like maybe three things you could offer? I would say one, give yourself the constant reminder that you are always enough. Mm, and you always yes. deserve care and respect, regardless of your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, and yes, your body size, right? That you always, always yes. care and respect first. Um, and then two, in order to do that, we have to stop taking in, internalizing these messages that don't serve us. And the best way mm-hmm. to do that, I think, is to start to um, be intentional about what kind of messages and environment we we surround ourselves in. And so it can start with uh, looking at what kind of social media accounts do I follow? What kind of magazine do I read? You know, what kind of um, comments am I making to other people? Are you saying, oh, have you lost weight whenever you see someone? Like, can we start to make, you know, non-body compliments of like, I love spending time with you, right? And so it's really being- energy is so fun. Yeah. Yeah. That being mindful of how we speak about bodies, what kind of information that we take in and consume. And so it's like, how can we be a little bit mindful of that? Start with social media, start with your conversations. Um, And then um, with food, I would say to challenge those food rules, whatever food rules that you might have about whether it's- good food, bad foods that you need to fight your hunger or you can't eat after a certain time. It's like, no, I don't need this arbitrary rules. I can ask myself internally, like, what do I need? And, you know, that's a process that takes time and practice and maybe a little guidance, but you were born with that wisdom is what I would say. There's no two-year-old in the world who doesn't love themselves. There's no two-year-old in the world that's worrying about eating a cookie. There's no two-year-old, five-year-old in the world that's worried about any of these arbitrary rules that we are making. So we, I, I love this idea of going back to your two-year-old self. Those are wonderful, wonderful, wonderful uh, points for people to take away from. I really enjoy talking to you, Mia. You are amazing. I'm excited to see you in this space. Uh, where can people find you. And of course, we'll link all this in the show notes. If they want to work with you um, through uh, Food Body Peace, where can folks find you? Yeah, I enjoyed our conversation so much, Diane. Thank you for having me. You can find me um, at my website, foodbodypeace.com. And I'm also very active on Instagram. And my handle is foodbody.peace. I have group coaching programs and one-on-one coaching programs. And even um, I have a three-day online workshop coming up in the beginning of November, which is a short, uh, short term interactive experiential program. So if you feel like I don't, I'm not ready for a whole long coaching program yet, but I want to get a taste of what this process of making peace with food and body really looks like, then it might be something that might be for you. And you can find more information about it on my website. Awesome. And we will link all of that in the show notes, including her bio, all the, all the tools that she has on her website. It has been my absolute pleasure to have talking, have, to have spoken to you about intentional well-being and the intentional well-being space. Thank you for being on the podcast. And don't forget, everybody, revolutionize, moisturize, wear your sunscreen, and eat the cookie. Thanks, everyone. Mm-hmm.